Rinmar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision Tier Science, Airy, Novartis, and Santin. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Well, I just want to thank everyone and welcome you all back for another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid COVID-19 coverage. I think everyone is going to be keenly interested in the topic we're talking about today, which is when ophthalmologists return to the front lines managing patients in the wards. Uh, this is something that I wasn't really anticipating. Uh, it's something that is starting to happen around the world. And today we're being joined by some colleagues from London who will be able to share their story. Blake, why don't you take it? Thanks, Gary. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a frightening thing for us ophthalmologists who are, are, are practicing now to the idea of having to be go back to the front lines and take care of uh, COVID patients. And we've been, there's been a lot of what ifs, and uh, perhaps that's even starting to happen in places like New York. Uh, but in London, that's already happened. Um, and, uh, you know, I was struck by an article that I read in, uh, the, I guess it's the British Medical Journal, it was a blog, um, um, on their online uh, forum uh, from Aaron, who we have here today with us. Hey, Aaron, how are you, man? Hi, really good. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm really, really excited to be on. Yeah, so we appreciate you coming on and also um, uh, a consultant ophthalmologist and, and a, your residency director, uh, Sarab. How are you doing, Sarab? Hi, I'm fine, thanks. Uh, but thank you so much for having us both on, on your program. Yeah, we appreciate it. Before we kind of get into the interview and talking about, you know, um, you know what the experience has been like as ophthalmologist on the front lines, I thought maybe we'd just have you both kind of introduce yourselves. Uh, Sarb, if you could go first and then Aaron. Sure. So I'm a consultant ophthalmologist or uh, an attending in American speak. So I specialize in pediatric ophthalmology and strabismus. So as far away from the wards as you can possibly imagine. I'm also the training program director for ophthalmology in London. So in London, we have about 100 trainees and I look after the, put up the, the penultimate here. So I look, up, look after about 36 trainees. So, so, so that's what I do. And Aaron? So I'm a ST1, so that's a first year ophthalmology trainee in London at the Royal Free Hospital, which uh, Mr. Jane kind of looks after. Um, and I finished my kind of my general medical training uh, two years ago, did two years of kind of working as a kind of medical trainee and then now I've just started ophthalmology just uh, eight months ago so very new to kind of your world of ophthalmology but very excited. Well here in the states we we have four years of medical school and then we have one year of resident uh, of internship we either do medicine or surgery and then three years of ophthalmology residency. How does it work uh, in the UK kind of what's the what's the different training levels how many years of ophthalmology are there before you're out practicing as a consultant? Um, so here we have our six years of medical school um, then we have two years of what you guys probably call the internship um, where we do a bit of general medicine general surgery which I finished in August just gone August 2019 and then we start uh, our specialty training so I've picked ophthalmology and it's seven years here so seven years of uh, ophthalmology training before we then go on to do fellowships or research and things like that in between or at the end um, and then we finally make it as a consultant. And Mr. Jay, my consultant, is um, one of the kind of training program directors. So I'm sure he was a big part of making that an extended seven-year course here. So, Mr. Jane, you, you must uh, sort of um, think our training in the U.S. is, uh, you know, 
th three years of ophthalmology residency is um, not a lot compared to what you all go through over there. So um, just walk me through that. What, what happens in those years? Because we, we sort of are thrown in, we start operating relatively quickly, and then you know, we're, we're done. So walk me through sort of what happens throughout the, the course of training and in a, in a nutshell, small, you know. Sure. So we, di we divide this into basic surgical training and higher surgical training. So the first two or three years are basic surgical training. So our residents start operating as soon as they start, but we have quite strict guidelines and targets they have to hit. For example, in the first year of training, they have to have done about 10 cataract operations by themselves. The second year, about 30. By the end of the third year, about 50. By the end of the training, about 400. And this is true of every subspecialty. So it's quite a broad training. And really what we want to do at the end of it is end up with an excellent comprehensive ophthalmologist and include the last year, and soon it will be 18 months, of subspecialist training. So for example, most people will do the last 18 months or one year in pediatrics or cornea or glaucoma. And then is retina, would that be a fellowship after maintaining, you know, attaining the consultant level? So, so un unlike the states, we divide retina into surgical retina and medical retina. So you can do either. Um, again, it depends on what kind of a job you're going at. So if, you, if you're going for a, a teaching hospital job with an academic component, it's a little bit more uh, competitive. So most people will do their training and they'll do one or two years of extra fellowships. They might do a bit of research as well. So Ophthalmology is extremely competitive in the UK, just as in the US. So we really end up with very, very bright, motivated people. Yeah, that, that's interesting. You know, we, we do feel like we attract the best and we're, you know, the brightest. Um, but it's one thing to be, you know, have aptitude. It's another thing to have, you know, experience and excellence. So, um, you know, I know that, Sarab, you're going to be going back into the ITU or the ICU, I think we call it, you know, about the same thing. Um, is that been intimidating for you to, to think about returning to the wards? Uh, absolutely. Uh, unlike Aaron, who uh, was on the wards eight months ago, I was on the wards um, 14, 15 years ago. So it's been a long, long time for me. But I think our hospital has been really excellent in that we know before we step onto the wards or the ITU or whatever, we know exactly what is going to be expected of us. They have arranged induction. So I've been for induction to learn how to prone and deprone a patient, how to put on the PPE, how to don and doff. Uh, they have given us a lot of tutorials to, to go through if we wish. And really what they want from us on the ICU is not to manage patients straight away. They really want us to be part of the ward rounds, to turn the patients over and to contact the patient relatives to give them information on how their loved ones are doing. So we start off with that and we hopefully build up skills quickly. So you're, you're sort of an extra hand and an extra liaison to help with the overflow of patients while the other doctors are able to go about their business. Uh, absolutely. And we're very much sort of assisting our anesthetists. So it's, um, so it will be a, a very different role, but I have to say we have been very well supported and we understand the need because we really need to, um, to pull out all the stops and look after these patients because our ICU capacity has expanded so much just over the past week or so. So Aaron, I, uh, I'm, I'm not that far out of, of, of residency. So I can remember vividly in my mind where you are right now or 15 days ago, you know, just in your first year of ophthalmology, you kind of completed your first two general years and now you're starting to you know, get, get used to the eye. Take me through your mindset 
when you got that, you know, text or email nine or 10 days ago saying you need to report to the wards in 24 hours? Yeah, it, that, that was, um, that was very, very kind of anxious for all of us. Um, we were, this was, on, I think two weeks ago now, like you said, and, um, even a couple of days before that we were sitting in our ophthalmology clinics on the Thursday morning, I had a cataract list with one of my consultants, Mr. Whitefield and another trainee. And we were just talking about how things might start to change over the next couple of weeks. And we've just, since that day, I've just realized every minute, every hour, things are changing and COVID-19 is going to impact all of us. And we're just trying to figure out what exactly is going to go on. So I got an email about 5 p.m. that day, sent to about 150 doctors across the hospital trust saying, uh, thanks for all your hard work because of what we expect to come. We're moving you onto a new COVID medical rotor. Please see the email. And the shift patterns were there that I was not used to or hadn't done for a long time. And there I saw my name uh, on team 13 and it said, you're on the confirmed COVID ward two, starting a night shift um, the very next day. Uh, and the first thing I did was I called Mr. Jane and said, what is going on? Was this the plan? And I, we were all very, very anxious initially. Because that's why you went into ophthalmology specifically is to not have to work night shifts on boards, right? Um, not the main reason, uh, but one of the reasons was hopefully being able to do these kind of uh less intensive less uh, uh more more what i want to do in terms of my night shifts and my day shifts but um straight into it yeah the very next day so aaron you know i can only imagine at some level you were thinking this is a, a prank this, this can't be you know was there a little bit of a denial like is this really happening right now to me like absolutely absolutely honestly i i remember i was like surely they've got the, they're a week out because even the media hadn't really been starting to kind of put too much of the news on COVID-19 as of yet. Now things have completely changed. But I, I even went the Friday morning into my uh, cornea clinic um, because I thought that uh, surely that's not me, that that's someone else. Um, and then I went there and that morning, Mr. Jane actually came and spoke to us and said, um, I've been on the phone nonstop. Uh, trying to find out what the ins and outs of what we were expected to do. And, um, and he was actually the one that gave me and my colleagues, the other trainees and the other kind of specialty doctors in ophthalmology, kind of that reassurance that I've spoken to them. This is kind of what we're expecting you to be able to do. And, and we were actually, we, I think they were expecting us to be kind of negative, first of all, kind of not helpful initially on the wards, but hopefully we can be trained up and kind of, made to feel comfortable so that one point in the future we are helpful so um that was really important for me to kind of have that reassurance to go along i think this is what they're going to expect and and that was really what made me feel like okay this is happening this is happening and um i might as well throw myself into it i want to um i want to uh, remind all the people who are, are watching this live and listening i see everyone's kind of starting to wake up i appreciate y'all joining us this saturday morning if you have any questions please feel free to put them in the q a section there and uh, we will definitely ask aaron and saraba 
uh, your questions that you have. Sarb, I want to kind of ask you, you know, um, Aaron was just kind of pointing to, um, you know, being scared initially, but also feeling supported once he showed up. Um, uh, there were some, you know, 35 doctors, many juniors, but five consultants there uh, from, from what I read in your article in the BMJ. Um, Sarb, can you talk about, you know, from a leadership perspective, you know, you're in charge of some 30 plus residents there in London. Um, kind of walk us through your emotions of, hey, you know what, I, I, I have to actually lead uh, yeah. these these young doctors, you know, I know that a lot of residency program directors say sometimes their residents are almost like uh, children to them, you know, you have to take care of them. So walk us through that. Very much so. So um, as Aaron said, this happened really quickly and our hospital is very progressive. So this happened at our hospital about two weeks before it happened anywhere else in London and, and, and the UK. So this was completely um, unexpected. So the first thing I think in any situation which is so unexpected is, is really to get information. So once I was made aware that this was happening, I spent the whole evening and most of the next morning trying to speak to the people on the wards, trying to find out what it is that these um, young residents would be asked to do because you know, information is key. And once you know what you're going in for, I think um, you know, you're much, more, much better prepared. Now, they would have given them the induction anyway, but they did not know that at that stage. All they knew, there was an email saying, next, next night, 9 p.m., you know, come to the handover, and a lot of these residents had, um, had not been on wards for years and years. I mean, Aram's very young, he just started, but we have people who were in the sixth, seventh year of training. So there was a lot of anxiety all around. So I took quite a few phone calls that evening. I uh, said, you know, leave it with me, I'll find out. And in the morning I went and spoke to all of them and, and I, you know, just laid out exactly what was going on, why we were doing it. And I did stress that they would always be supported. They would never be asked to do anything outside the comfort zone. And I was always there if they wanted to raise a, a query uh, and I would always support them. And it, it sort of worked. And I have to say, I received a lot of feedback from medical colleagues from the wards and they've been amazed at the ophthalmologists and how much they've contributed. You know, I'll say this, you know, I was, I did a surgery internship. So that's sort of like a foundational year one, I guess would be like in your, in your system. So I did a, you know, surgery intern year, you know, was, was certified in advanced trauma life support and was doing you know, running codes and those sorts of things. That was 2004, um, you know, and, and it was kind of a, it was kind of a joke a little bit that here's this ophthalmologist, you know, future ophthalmologist trying to play real doctor for a year. Yeah. And I really, you know, I really embraced that because I thought like my father is an internist. So general medicine has been in my family and I grew up around it. And so I thought, you know, this is really my one chance to embrace it. I'll never have another chance in my life really to, uh, you know, to use this. I'm going to really go all in. Um, how has it been, Aaron? I mean, do, do your do the people you're working with? I mean, are they? I assume they don't have high expectations at the beginning, but I assume you're being very helpful. And I would imagine, you know, the ophthalmologists I know, we don't ever like to to be second place. We like to really go and and we like to over overcome and and really show people what we're capable of. So, do you feel like you're sort of getting back into the stream of things and able to really contribute? And how's that going? Yeah, so I've been on this rotor for almost two weeks now. Um, and like I said, at the start, I was really, really worried. What was the point of me even being there? I didn't know how the system worked. I hadn't used a stethoscope. I hadn't looked at a chest x-ray. So many things that were so normal for all of us when we were doing our kind of medical school and kind of internship training. But they, they really appreciated, first of all, me being there. Honestly, all my medical colleagues were very grateful for all of us just to have kind of 
taking a step out of our comfort zone. They wouldn't have wanted to come onto a kind of super intense cat track list. And that was the last thing they would have ever wanted to do. And it's kind of like that for us, because even though we've had all this medical school training, we become de-skilled and we forget things very, very quickly unless we're doing it very regularly. So the main jobs that kind of I was being kind of asked to kind of do at the start were, were simple things that you don't need to remember. You just need to put yourself in there, kind of calling relatives, um, kind of uh, uh, getting used to the system on board, documenting on ward rounds, things like that, that we've all done before. And before you know it, you really do remember a lot of things. And um, I don't want to go too much into, I don't know if this is what we talk about, into the medicine side of these COVID patients, but it's, it's a lot of general medicine and a lot of kind of escalating when you're worried and not trying to be a hero and trying to remember we are doctors, but this is all new to us. And there are other people that are there to kind of make these decisions in terms of how this patient's care kind of gets altered. So my job really was to say, this patient looks like they're deteriorating or actually looks like they're doing better. Make sure observations are being done. And yeah, before you know it, three days in, and I, and I don't want to say the word, but I started to feel more comfortable. I'm not going back to medicine. I can guarantee that. I do want to come back to ophthalmology when this is all over, but the experience. That's a great decision. <laughs> the experience of the Royal Free has been really, really good. And the one thing I do have to add is I'm very grateful for being kind of put in there early because when I did start, like I said, there were so many doctors around that it felt like it was an opportunity to learn more than anything. And I had that first two or three 12 hour shifts to really try and get myself in on the system. I had senior registrars teaching me things that I had been taught in medical school, but I needed that kind of introduction. So now that this is happening kind of all over London here, I think getting in early is really, really vital to letting, to letting us ophthalmologists feel kind of back in the system and back kind of, this is, we can be helpful. Yeah, the, um, the article, you know, kind of indicated that you, were, you kind of had baptism by fire. They kind of got you all right in there um, uh, because you were predicting sort of a tsunami or sort of a surge. You know, Sarb, if you could kind of talk about, um, you know, where y'all were eight or nine days ago when this article was written and I saw it on Twitter versus now. Has the surge happened? Uh, kind of walk us through, uh, not, not necessarily specific to your hospital, but just in general in London. So... I think London's in a bad place. I think there's no two ways about it. So yesterday we had 684 deaths in, um, in, in the UK, and a lot of them are in London. Uh, so at the moment, London is the epicenter of, the, um, of the, the COVID upsurge. We think the upsurge will probably continue and peak in one to two weeks because we went into lockdown about uh, 10 days ago. So that's what we're expecting will, will happen. So I think we're still playing catch up a little bit. We are not quite as, as sharp a rise as New York, but it's not far off. It's very much like Italy. So we're very much tracking Italy at the moment. Yeah. Uh, we've got a question from Bill Wiley, a great friend of all of ours. Um, and I'm just going to read it so we can answer this live. Uh, the average ophthalmologist in the U.S. is not doing much as most of their clinics slash surgery is shut down due to uh, only urgent or emergent care only. Uh, would you recommend we volunteer at local hospitals and can we really help? So um, I think that's very, very true of, of what's happening here as well. So the first thing uh, we did was we closed down all elective surgery because a lot of our patients, especially for cataract surgery, even for intravital injections are, are over 70, over 80. And we just did not feel it was worth bringing them into hospital. 
we have a risk stratification document. So we have very clear guidelines into who needs to be brought in and who doesn't. So anything that's high risk or may cause loss of vision are the only people we'll be seeing at the moment, apart from acute ophthalmology. So absolutely. I, and, you know, I would say this to everybody. There's always something you can do. So when they came to us and said, we need to, we, we'll, we'll be in the ITU rotor, we were with all the proper surgeons, we were with the vascular surgeons, with the hepatobiliary, with the orthopods. We did wonder what we'd contribute because the vascular surgeons are able to do Dopplers on the veins, they're able to put lines in, the orthopods are, are able to do, you know, um, uh, uh, assess the joints and the bones. And I'm like, well, what will we do? But actually, you know, they said, they said all, all hands to deck. And it turned out we can do quite a lot. So absolutely, there's always something to do. What about dermatologists? Yes, so they, they are, and that's the first department I called when they, when they told me my residents are going to the ward. The first department I called were the dermatologists, the psychiatrists. So I spoke to a psychiatry friend yesterday and said the first time he's worn scrubs in, uh, he was a medical student. So they're all, uh, it's, it's, a real, it's a real group effort. We're all in it. Well, I, I think the psychiatrist would probably be there for all the other doctors uh, going through this right now. That's right. And uh, hopefully they'll be good at breaking bad news. So as I said, we all have a part to play and we'll something we can find. For example, on ITU, they want, to look us, they want us to look at the eyes because they're getting a bit of exposure. So, you know, there is always something that hopefully specialty can contribute. Yes. Keep that, keep that lacquer lube uh, in and those <laughs> eyes taped shut. I want yeah. you guys to make sure there's no corneal abrasions in the ICU. Okay. That's right. That's when we come into our own, you see, and you see a corneal abrasion. <laughs> We have a um, we have a uh, a couple questions that have come in. Um, one from Alice. Um, she's asking, you know, uh, because you're going in and treating, you know, COVID on the COVID wards. Are you living separately from your family? Are you seeing them, you know, from behind glass glass walls? Like I'm seeing a lot of my uh, uh, respiratory uh, critical care friends are are doing. Um, so can you comment on that? And then. Uh, after we'll talk about antibody testing, uh, Kathy McCabe has some questions about, do you guys have antibody, antibody testing? Is it on the horizon? And will that make you feel more comfortable treating COVID patients? So firstly, uh, maybe Aaron, you know, I don't know if you have, uh, if you're married or have, have kiddos or anything, uh, but can you kind of comment on what the ophthalmologists who do, are they separating from their family? So in my situation, I have actually, I, my grandma who was living in my house, I've asked her to move to live with my, with my uncle, my cousin, just because uh, she's very elderly and I knew that despite all the precautions I could take, there was, a, there was an increased risk being in a hospital, working in a hospital, walking in and out and seeing these patients. And that was actually before I even moved onto the COVID rotor. That was just even working in the clinics and theatres. But I have to say that at the Royal Free, um, we've been offered accommodation uh, for anyone who wants it, who wants to kind of isolate from their families. And there's been no restriction on that that I've been made aware of. I know some of my ophthalmology trainees, like my fellow trainees, have taken that option. Um, and they've been really, really supportive at our hospitals in terms of kind of food, um, accommodation. Uh, everything's really been, um, really been there because they know we're scared. Um, while we think we're scared, everyone there is scared as well. No one was really prepared for this pandemic especially to come as fast as it did come. And they've done everything they can. And I think even over the last two weeks, I think every day I get an email saying, oh, we've also introduced this, if that's helpful, if that's helpful, if that's helpful. And they're really kind of responding to our feedback, not just as trainees in ophthalmology, but medical doctors, because this is affecting absolutely everyone. Um, and I know in terms of 
some other kind of some other the doctors they've had to kind of self-isolate because of kind of relatives in their household being unwell um, I think Mr Jane can probably talk a bit more about kind of how it's affected other trainees so yes so um so just two things. I think firstly, I agree with Aaron that the, the role free has really gone all out to, uh, to support us in, in this time. For example, just recent, just yesterday, they've opened a new, a new bit called Free at the Free, and in which they have um, groceries, they have toiletries. It's all for doctors who can't get to the shops at the moment. So it opens in the morning and, and it's all free and you can go and take six items from there, whatever you want, because you might not have a time to go to the shops. And I think that's hugely appreciated at this time. So, so, uh, so I have a question. Is there a toilet paper shortage in the UK? I mean, no. it's, cool. it's crazy. You cannot buy toilet paper in the United States. All the shelves are bare. And I'm wondering, did, is, this a, is this something that, that we inherited from the UK system? Is it happening there? What's going on? So, so the, yeah, so for we some ask the reason, questions that people want to know the answers to. Yes, that's right. And I do not understand what is it about toilet paper that everybody went out and got, you know, I, I'm absolutely, it's not a condition that causes diarrhea in the most amount, number of cases, but yeah, there was a real run on toilet paper. Uh, a lot of the supermarkets in, the, in London, especially, don't have big, uh, uh, big storage capacity. They, they work on a just-in-time model. So they only order what they think they can sell. So even a 10% spike in, in you, you know, buying something can cause shortages. But I think we over that now. I think everybody has now enough toilet toilet paper for the next three years, as far as I can see. So I think people have calmed down now. They've got toilet paper. Uh, Just as a question to give us some perspective, um, tell us what it's like in London. I, actually, a year ago today, I was in London with my family and just fell in love with the city. Um, the cab drivers, for those who haven't been, are a real treat. And some of the, it's really a highlight for me. It was just getting a tour from the cab drivers, but. London is just one of the most sophisticated and um, classiest cities I've, I've been to. What is it like there? Are people, you know, keeping calm, carrying on? Or, or is everyone sheltering in place? Are they quarantine at home? Are people wearing masks? And is there a recommendation for those out and about to be wearing masks? What is the general populace like right now in London? <clears throat> so, um, I mean, firstly, thank you for saying that. You know, I, I also think it's one of the best cities to live in. And it has been a bit of a shock to the system. Uh, the first thing was a lockdown because a lot of people suddenly couldn't go to work and that so the tube use has, is down the tube is our, is our metro system is down about 90 percent from what is what so the first thing is when you go to the hospitals you have whole carriages to yourself that's something you never see uh, i think people are keeping calm i don't think many people are wearing masks at the moment the thing that has changed is people are very aware of social distance even when they're out and about the thing that's changed is you can see people queuing to go into supermarkets and they because it's a bit one in, one out. So that, that's what's changed. And of course, all the restaurants are closed. All the barbers are closed. Everybody's going to have crazy hair by the time this finishes. Uh, but apart yeah. from that, the city, the city carries on. We, we live to the blitz. And Aaron, what do you think? I think, I think something I have to say is, um, yes, it's very quiet. My commute into work is about a third of what it normally is. Uh, if, if I was to drive into the Royal Free in central London normally, that's a, an hour plus, and now it's 25 minutes. And... I think it was really nice one day. I think since the lockdown started about, yeah, t just one and a half weeks ago, every Thursday we've had this clap for the NHS, um, which I've really seen kind of, um, it's kind of been like this public led thing, which kind of really spread across the news. I don't know if you guys have seen this, where 8 p.m. every Thursday, just as my shift starts, 
you can really hear like everyone really trying to support us and there's there's positivity really um everyone knows that we're in this and it's not going away overnight and i think there's an understanding now um amongst medical medics and non-medics that uh, things are going to get worse but there's everything everyone is talking about COVID-19 um, everyone's asking me questions on whatsapp and uh, I think you're probably seeing something similar there but there's a real camaraderie and really support for all our doctors or our nurses everyone in the grocery stores who are kind of having to go into work um, so I think London is still amazing um, and we, we will hopefully get back very very soon um, I can't answer when that's a million dollar question we can't, we can't uh, speak to two British gentlemen, Gary, without asking about the royal family. Um, oh, yeah. I understand you know, Prince Charles has COVID, is that right? And even the prime minister, um, just the, psych, the, psych, the psychology of that has uh, got to be pretty crazy for the citizens. Can you kind of talk about you know, what the royal family is doing now that one of them has tested positive and, and, and how Prince Charles and, and Boris are, are, are recovering? So, so this was a bombshell, as you can imagine. You know, this is not something you want to see in a time of crisis, as all your authority figures. But I have to say, you know, uh, Boris has been in isolation. He's supposed to come out this week, but I don't think he's quite there yet. He's got in isolation for one more week. Prince Charles has made a good recovery. So, in fact, he opened the Nightingale Hospital remotely. Um, I think yes, it was just yesterday. So, yeah, he's, he's made a good recovery. Um, yeah, I think they're, they're, they're the Queen's still fighting fit in the 94 and still going strong. She's invincible. We, we're convinced. She's a, um, there's actually a question that came through um, from Gregory Hayden, and I'll just read the question. It says, for the U.S., does anyone know who holds the authority to mandate community physicians being called to work in hospitals slash ICUs? Is this up to the hospital, the, the county, the state, or the federal level? Um, and Gregory, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my opinion because I've done a little bit of research on this. Uh, Mayor uh, de Blasio yesterday actually called for um, a draft of sorts for physicians across the United States so that we, uh, so that uh, various hospitals or jurisdictions can bring in uh, physicians uh, to the hot zones, as it were. Um, as I did some research on this, actually the uh, selective service system, so our, our federal draft system, has a provision in it called Healthcare Personal Delivery System, the HCPDS. I was not aware of this, but there actually is um, part of the selective service system allows the government to draft doctors. Now it's, it's, it's intended for wartime, but it does also talk about health emergencies. And I think the, um, the mechanism for which that would be enacted would be an act of Congress, which would then have to be signed into law by the president. Uh, so uh, it does seem like there is um, you know, a mechanism for doing this whether or not uh, Congress and the president would feel like it's necessary to do that and would act quickly enough uh, remains to be seen. I don't know anything beyond that for, for, for a local or state level. You know, so, and I would say that, you know, even if that does happen, Gary, you know, and, and I'm curious what, what, uh, what our two uh, panelists would say, but I would imagine that we ophthalmologists won't be called upon to be managing ventilators and putting in central lines. I think if we did get drafted in something like that, 
really we'd be kind of like a safety valve, almost like the hospitals that they're building, uh, you know, the field hospitals, they aren't, they're really to, almost like a step down. When patients are doing better or healthier, they go there. So perhaps we would be doing stuff like that. And that kind of brings me to the question, you know, maybe Aaron, you can kind of speak to, you know, what are, you, what are your daily tasks? You know, what are your hours? And when you're in the hospital, what exactly are, are you doing? So, so the road to that, all the trainees up the most <laughs> right up to myself, up to the consultants have been put on, is a three day on, three day off, three nights on, three nights off, um, 12 hour shift patterns, which is completely different to what I'm used to. Um, but it, uh, it's basically a kind of, well, I'm on the COVID water, that's kind of split into COVID suspected patients, COVID positive patients, the A&E take, which is kind of clerking in patients, and then the green areas, which are, non-suspected COVID patients. And our jobs are basically to be kind of intern level doctors, which is starting off kind of documenting on ward rounds, um, calling patients' families, taking histories, communicating from doctor to doctor, really just hands on deck as, as, as you guys have kind of pointed out, really starting off as kind of just being there as hands to support and kind of picking up on where we think we are strong. Some of us have different areas where we feel more comfortable. Um, I've gone to take back to taking bloods and putting in cannulas. I think central lines and all of that is probably well beyond kind of my capabilities and a lot of our capabilities. And the important thing is we will be given training where we feel that we need it. And even for example, taking blood, it wasn't that long ago for me, but there's a completely different protocol now in terms of double gloving, using your personal protective equipment that I had to be completely taught. And even kind of the respiratory doctors and the infectious disease doctors, they're, this is all very new to them as well. A lot of this, yes, the tasks are kind of their day-to-day -day activities, but changing things up for them, they're all learning on the job as well. And this is a great thing about medicine. It's all about teaching and constantly learning. You never feel like you know everything. And it's an experience that I think we will all look back on for the rest of our lives and say, this is what we did to contribute and we're very proud of it. Um, so that's in terms of the trainees. I think some of the consultants like Mr. Jane have already been roped into helping out on ITU, which, um, which I think he can talk about himself. Yes, uh, I think that's right. I mean, I have to say, I haven't done my first ITU shift. I've only had the training. I'm supposed to do it on Wednesday. And again, the whole hospital actually has moved to a 12 hour rota. They even want us to do that in ophthalmology. So we do an 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. and 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. now in ophthalmology when we, uh, we had seven satellite sites in, in the main site and we, we brought them all, we closed down everything and brought it down to just one site to consolidate all our resources because all our nurses have also been deployed onto the wards. So simple things like uh, giving an intravitreal injection has now become a much more of a palaver because you have to know, you have to open the, 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 the cupboard, find the drug, get the patient, all these things that just used to happen for us. Uh, we just are, are having to do simple thing like locking a clinic at the end of the day, you know, just thing that we never even thought about. So um, we we're having to do even in ophthalmology, and of course, then there's the um, the, the added. Uh, yeah. Sorry about not to cut you off, but I read I read I think I read somewhere where you wrote there were some 22 doors that you had to close, right. and it took 30 minutes to to close the doors and lock up in sterile technique. <laughs> it's just about finding which key fit which doors. You know, the nurses do it every day, and for them, I'm sure it's a final job. But for people like me who are fumbling in the dark, it was it was it took a long time. It really gives you an appreciation of how much happens behind the scenes. That's the other thing I've gained from this. 
for example, one of my colleagues did a vitrectomy and they asked me to, um, to recover the patient, take them to the ward. And it wasn't so easy because I had to go and find a wheelchair, get the patient on there, then wheel them to the ward, find drugs to give them. It all, it all takes, a, and it's something you're not familiar with doing. So I've certainly gained a lot of appreciation in what the um, allied health professionals do for us every day. Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a great um, point of all this. I, I learned very quickly when I was an intern and a medical student that if, you, if you're nice to the nurses, they will help you out and they will point you in the right direction. You know, they, they would say, you know, Dr. So-and-so generally gives this for, for hypertension. Would you like me to go ahead and, and give this? You know, sort of gently suggesting what I should do. And I was always like, yes, that, that sounds like a very good plan. I agree with that. So, um, you know, the nurses, uh, you know, are... Are are always you know very very helpful. Has is that have you noticed that as well in your situation? Are the nurses stepping up to help you and, and give you some guidance, Aaron? Because I always found that very helpful when I was you know training. Absolutely, I think I remember when I started as my FY one, so foundation year doctor. The very first piece of advice I got told was, "Don't make enemies with the nurses because you need them more than they need you." Um, <laughs> uh, I live by that and it's really nice now because honestly, I think two days ago I was on a shift and um, I saw my ophthalmology nurse on the ward with me, completely not expecting her to be there, but we've all been put in places we don't necessarily, ex we didn't expect to be. And it was just nice to see friendly faces. And I'll be honest, as soon as I went to any ward, I always told them, okay, I need you to understand I'm an eye doctor and this is all very new to me. And as soon as you say that, they're all very great, they're, they're all so grateful for you even being there. And um, I didn't know where things were. I didn't know how things worked. Um, my mask necessarily wasn't on correctly and they showed me what, what, what I was doing wrong. So everyone is very, very helpful and everyone is trying to kind of pull their resources together. And something that's really important is they, 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 it's not just COVID. People are still getting sick and there are other medical problems that are happening. And whether it's ophthalmology issues or whether it's kind of, surgical issues, it's really important. I think I got told by one of the handover doctors, don't just think a fever is COVID. Just think outside the box. We're all medically trained doctors that we need to kind of put all our brains together and think, are we missing something? Because there's a huge, everyone's talking about COVID. So it's really important to just take a step back and think, is there something that actually this could be something else? And I think it's really important just to use our knowledge really, really well. And with the nurses have been We've been great and yeah I, I echo that to anyone who's being moved onto the wards they are your best friends and they are more helpful to you when you're the only doctor on the ward called to see a sick patient it's not necessarily seeing a sick patient that's a hard thing it's getting everything ready it's knowing where to write the notes it's knowing where the patient is so absolutely um, to everyone whether it's a consultant or a trainee remember that when you when you go onto a new ward Gary, there's a there's a, a really good uh, sort of a question coming in from Dr. Tauber. Um, uh, you know, we're all we're we're all talking about how we would be mentally preparing ourselves to go to the COVID wards, but what about preparing our family uh, and and kind of what's their what's their take on this? Sara, maybe you could speak to how 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 was your family handling it, knowing that you're going to be going in this coming up Wednesday to the COVID ward? Maybe talk to that and also. What are you going to be doing with your ophthalmology clinic whenever you're on the COVID wards? How are you handling that? Okay, so I'll answer the second bit first. For the ophthalmology clinic, we've set up a rotor in which uh, we've all been pulled into the main hospital, the main teaching hospital site. There are no more retina clinics or glaucoma clinics or pediatric, they're just clinics. So we're all doing 
uh, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., whoever comes in, and uh, in addition to that, we're just calling in some of the high-risk patients. So, and again, you know, even with ophthalmology, a lot of my ophthalmology colleagues have been put in clinics that they don't always do. A lot of, you know, a lot of us get very subspecialized and they don't always do glaucoma clinics or retina clinics, but they've all stepped up and they know there's a lot of support around. So, so it's working okay. And what we said, the attendings are always available. So if you're on, for example, a lot of people doing on-call now were never on-call before. So they're having to do nights. And we've told them, if you see a child, you can always call me. If you see a glaucoma patient, you don't know what to do, we can always call the glaucoma attending. So we're all trying to step in together to do that. As far as, you know, it is difficult for our families, absolutely. And then I told my mom and my sister um, that I was going to be put in IT, um, on ITU. I think they were very anxious, but again, you know, knowledge is key. And if you explain to them that ITU actually, you're probably going to have the best protective um, uh, equipment anywhere on the hospital because you know everybody is, is, is a COVID positive patient and you take so many extra precautions. Um, I, I think that does help and they, and they understand that this is an emergency, we all have to do our bit. So I think it's little by little and information helps. You know, one other thing I would just ask is, you know, do you, are you seeing any particular treatments um, or uh, clinical trials going on in, in London that seem to have promise or seem to be effective? Uh, you know, that's something, that's the magic question we're all looking for. We're looking at our, you know, health system in the United States and looking at all the trials and, and different things that are happening. Do you see anything on the horizon uh, treatment-wise uh, that, that seems to be effective? Um, I think there are a lot of trials and a lot of things going on and you hear lots of rumors, whether they're, they're the golden cure, I, I don't really know. I know that lots of different hospitals at the Royal Free, they're trying lots of different things and everyone's got their fingers crossed, but I, I don't know what, what's working or not. All I know is what I've been told is this is how you kind of monitor the patients and as soon as you feel like they're deteriorating, this is how the step-by-step -step escalation plan and then and then eventually, unfortunately, it goes down to IT. Usually right. these patients need a discussion with ITU. But in terms of whether there's a, something that's working better, I can't say right now. I just don't know. Yeah, yeah. Saurabh, so, any, any comments on that? Yeah, no, I would second that. So as I said, my other half is a respiratory physician. So I have a lot of, we have a lot of discussions. And again, there's a lot of trials going on at the moment in, in Europe um, and the UK. And I don't think there's any breakthrough drug at the moment. But at the moment, they say the treatment is mostly supportive. Uh, the treatment is just to be able to recognize when a patient becomes tachypneic and the sacs are falling to get them to the ITU, to get them high flow oxygen, to keep in a prone position. That's what they're doing at the moment. And yeah, maybe we watch this space. Hopefully something will emerge. Yeah, that's great. Well, guys, I, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Um, you guys are heroes and, you know, we're, we're here for you. We're supporting you, you know, if nothing else, in spirit. And we just want to say thank you for sharing what you're going through. Um, thank you for giving us some support and some guidance as, as to what might be coming our way. Uh, Blake, any thoughts? Any final thoughts to wrap up? Yeah, you know, I, I just I just want to thank, um, um, you know, the ability to, to come together like this is so important. We've, we've interviewed ophthalmologists who are COVID positive themselves. Now we've interviewed, uh, you know, uh, you guys who are on the front lines there in England fighting this. So uh, thanks to BMC and also the generous support from our sponsors, uh, Gary, that are allowing us to do programs like this. 
Um, we look forward to, to next week. Uh, on Monday, we're going to have Allison Shuren on. She's going to be talking about breaking down the CARES Act a little bit more. Um, so we want to make sure everybody stays tuned to that. But, but uh, to our two panelists today, again, I, I want to say uh, uh, we appreciate you taking the time. It's amazing what you guys are doing. Um, and thank you so much for, for being with us today. Thank you very much for having us yeah. on. It's been thank, a pleasure. Thank you for having us on. Really, really appreciate it. Look forward to meeting in person in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Take care. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision Tier Science, Airy, Novartis, and Santin. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.